We live in a society today where uh, we have so much freedom and we have access to so many resources that for many of us, for many of us, as we walk with God, uh, we can do Christian things without any real faith. What I mean is that we don't really need to depend on God for anything on a daily basis. And that's both a blessing and a curse that we are gifted with so much freedom and resources in our society, in this country. And yet, there are moments when you and I get rocked by a crisis. Perhaps you experience crushing loneliness or um, a medical diagnosis or some brokenness in your family. You may lose a job or maybe you lost a loved one. And it's in those moments, not in peace and prosperity, but how we respond to adversity that often reveals if we really trust God, what kind of faith we have. And so you may find yourself, or at least I find myself sometimes asking questions like, Lord, why did you let this happen? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you there for me? Or I'll just deal with it myself because our eyes are so fixed on the problem that we cannot see Jesus. And so it's easy for someone to stand up here and say, well, you and I should persevere in our faith when times are tough. But it's hard for us to actually stay anchored when the seas of life are rough. And so this morning, we're going to look to God-given examples of faith, hopefully for some encouragement. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 11. We're in this series called Anchored, where we're discovering that as turbulence in our lives causes us to drift from our faith, that Jesus is an anchor of hope for our souls. That for the Hebrew Christians back then, and for us now, that this letter is a call for us to hang on to Jesus because he is better than all the other people and pursuits and possibilities in which we place our hope. And so last week we began this walk through the spiritual hall of fame, these examples of faith who trusted in God's presence as a reality and God's promises as a certainty. And this week, we're going to move on from Abraham and his family, examples of faith at its best, to Moses and his legacy, examples of faith under duress. And so let's pick up where we left off last week in Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Let's stop right there for a moment. And so at this point, this author is walking us through history from the beginning. We started in Genesis all the way up through his time. And we saw that God has preserved Abraham and his descendants by settling them in Egypt in the midst of a famine. And during that time, his household has grown from 70 people that came into Egypt at the end of Genesis to over a million people by the time of Exodus. They've become a great and numerous nation as God had promised. But remember, This is not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises for them because they are far from the promised land. Fearful of their numbers, the Pharaoh of the land, the king of Egypt, at first enslaves the Hebrew people, and then he orders that every Hebrew newborn baby 
Every newborn male baby, I should say, was to be murdered by tossing them into the Nile River, a form of eugenic population control. And so this first example of faith isn't Moses's, but his parents. In verse 23, they hid their baby as long as they could because they were, it says, not afraid in verse 23. That means that by courageous faith, they defied this king because they trusted God. Parents, grandparents, godparents, or maybe if you're an uncle or an aunt or or a big brother or big sister, I hope that that will be your legacy to the children around you. That they see you respond to challenges, not with fear, but with faith. Showing that your circumstances are not Lord, but that Jesus is. Now, when this baby had grown too big and too loud for them to hide anymore, they comply with Pharaoh's command, but with a little bit of a twist. They do throw Moses into the river Nile, but in a boat. And as he floats through the water through the sovereignty of God, Pharaoh's daughter ends up receiving the baby, adopting him, and raising him. So in verses 24 to 25, we jump now to Moses' adulthood. Now I want you to picture in your mind, all his life, all his 20-something years, he's been educated as an Egyptian. He's been raised as a royal. And so when he becomes an adult, he could have continued enjoying this cushy life that he had avoiding the social and political controversies of Hebrew suffering. Well, that's not my problem. I live up here in the palace with the king. And yet, God orchestrated it so that his, his actual Hebrew mother ended up becoming his nanny all these years, whispering the truths and the promises of God into his ears, into his heart growing up. And so, following his parents' example of faith, He decides, I'm going to refuse my privilege. I'm going to choose to identify with the Hebrew people and to suffer with the Hebrew people instead of, the verse says, enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin that always overpromise and underdeliver to us. It's fleeting. And yet the question remains, how in the world do we choose to resist choosing pleasure no matter how temporary instead of suffering? And here's the key. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ. That means he knew from from what the Bible was teaching him, from what his parents taught him from a young age, that when the Messiah comes, that the Messiah, the Savior King, would experience intense suffering on behalf of God's people to save us from sin and death so that we could receive his righteousness and life. And so he considered suffering like Christ, considered considered suffering for Christ, of greater worth than all the treasures and pleasures in Egypt. Why? Because it says in verse 25 that he looked forward to the reward. Verse 26, excuse me. He looked forward to this reward that was coming, that he receives not because he's good enough, religiously speaking, but because he trusts God enough. And so the big idea from this whole text this morning is that even when it costs us something now, courageous faith trusts God to look past the short-term pleasures or pains of this life to the long-term promises ahead in Christ. That when the fear of suffering or the lure of temptations lead us away from God, that you and I can persevere by focusing on how much greater the fulfillment ahead is with Jesus. So let me ask you, When the price to follow Jesus stings, do you respond in faith 
or in fear? Do you respond to that moment afraid of what it will cost, or do you trust what God has in store for you? Is having Jesus and his promises of greater worth than all the treasures and pleasures of this life? And I'm convinced that for some of us, like Moses, that God is calling you to maybe walk away from a lucrative career or a cushy life to go into full-time ministry of the gospel in some way. And the crisis for some of you right now is, do I believe in Jesus, his mission, and his promises enough to actually do that? For others of us, we need to figure out how do you need to re-engineer your finances, your career, your family, your future, so that it's used for the purposes of God. Okay, that sounds all well and good, but what if the obstacles are too great or the the cost is too high and it it feels, feels like it's unfeasible, it's practically impossible for me to follow Jesus because of the obstacles ahead? Verse 27. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So let's stop right there for a moment. Verse 27, by faith, Moses left Egypt and his privilege and his position behind. Like his parents, he's not afraid. He has courageous faith to stand against the anger of a king, his adoptive grandfather. And he endured because he saw God who is invisible. How? Does he have x-ray vision? How does that work? Because remember we talked about this last week. You can trace the contours of what is unseen by its effect on what you can see, the evidence of his presence and power. And so in verse uh, 28, Moses is able to see the shape of God in the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, you may remember that the presence of God was promised to pass over, pass through the entire nation of Egypt at midnight, striking down every firstborn child whether Hebrew or Egyptian, without discrimination, because of the sin and idolatry of all the people in the nation. But in verse 28, Moses and Israel are instructed to trust God, that he will deliver them if they will paint the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doors as a substitute sacrificial payment to pay their redemption price, their salvation price, so that the judgment of God and death for sin will literally pass over them. That's why it's called the Passover. Of course, we know that that points forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who through his sacrifice as the Lamb of God pays our debt of sin so that the judgment of God and death for sin passes over us as well. Now, here's the problem. Here's where it takes some faith. If you're a Hebrew parent and you mark your door with blood, it's like a neon sign to the Egyptians in the city. Look, there are Hebrew children here. And so the stakes are high. And yet, by faith, they do it. And in his faithfulness, God does what he promises. 
Verse 29, then Moses leads Israel out of Egypt to the brink of the Red Sea. They think that they're ready for freedom, that they've, they've been released from their captivity. And waiting for their next move, what happens? The Egyptian armies come roaring up behind them. So they're trapped between this army that wants to slaughter all of them and the depths of the Red Sea itself. God, what are we supposed to do in this moment? Well, I want you to go forward. Uh, but there's an ocean right there. Trust me. And they do. And then God drives a mighty wind from the east, parting the literal waters of the Red Sea. And as promised, the children of Israel cross on dry land. Verse 30, when they finally arrive at the, the promised land, they cross into the promised land. Instead of picking the easy wind first, God leads them to face the impregnable, impregnable fortress of Jericho. Okay, God, what's the plan here? Okay, children of Israel, Moses, this is what I want you to do. Joshua, this is what I want you to do. Line everyone up, walk around the city without saying a word. No battle cries, no trash talking. And on the last day, I just want you to march around the city seven times and then shout at the top of your lungs. And then I, God, will bring the walls tumbling down. Now, I want you to picture what is being asked of the people there. This isn't just silly. It's dangerous because they're going to enter the range of these arrows and slings unarmed. And yet by faith, they do it. And in his faithfulness, God does his part. Now, in verse 31, literally on the other side of the fence, within the walls of Jericho, is a woman named Rahab. And take note here, she's both a pagan and a prostitute. So not your picture of a worshiper of God, someone who has, who's an example of faith. So why is she included here? Because she personifies the very same kind of courageous faith that Moses does. You see, the people of Jericho, they thought that they could defy God and defeat Israel because they trusted in what they can see, the mighty walls of Jericho, above, over what they couldn't see, an invisible God. But by faith, Rahab decided that trusting God was of greater value than her popularity amongst her peers or her political loyalty as a resident of Jericho. And she declares in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the Lord is the God of heaven above and earth below. She believed that God would and could save her, and he does. <clears throat> so what is the common thread that we're tracing through all these examples of faith in Moses' generation? That when the odds and the obstacles are against you, faith requires that you and I take an extraordinary risk. That the point here is that courageous faith trusts God in the face of danger by taking steps of obedience. That even when we can't see God in the moment, that there's a deliberate decision that you and I have to make to trust his presence and his power and his promises through our actions, not just our thoughts and our words, even when it's risky, even when it is costly to us. So let me ask you, when God is speaking clearly to you, do you respond faithfully to him? When Jesus leads you to a mountain that seems insurmountable and he equips you to climb it, Faith doesn't just believe that the rope will hold. It leans back on the rope. And so I want to start off by asking you, what is your insurmountable Egypt or Red Sea or Jericho? How is God calling you to take a next step of faith? 
in light of that obstacle. And it may be costly. It may be risky. But if you listen to Jesus, if you trust and follow Jesus, that very thing that threatens to break us might be the very thing that God uses to bless us. Because you get to see the power of God at work today and trust the promises of God for tomorrow. Now, like me, you may not be a giant of faith like Moses. And perhaps your life is marked by moments of distrust or doubt or despair or indecision. Let's see what the Bible has to say about that. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So in verse 32, the author tells us there's not even enough time left in all of history to describe to you the courageous faith of all these people after Moses, these judges and kings and prophets, all who were famous for their faith, yet also flawed in their faith. What do I mean? You see, when Israel was being oppressed by the Midianites, God called Gideon to save his people. Yet this man was filled with doubts and anxiety, so he kept pestering God for miraculous signs to make sure that that God was with him. And even when God strips away all of his reliance on himself or the size of his army, this man obeys God, he trusts God, and he experiences victory in God. Barak was a military general that came after Gideon. And yet this mighty general was too scared to go into battle unless This uh, female prophetess, Deborah, promised that she would back him up and come with him. She does, so he does. And then God gives them the victory, even in the midst of Barak's fears. Samson, you may have heard of him. He's both super strong and super dumb. He flirts with this woman, Delilah, and he flirts with sexual immorality till she betrays him to the Philistines who were oppressing the people of Israel at that time. The history of Israel is one of continuous oppression and conquering and enslavement by various uh, nations throughout history. And Samson, in his brokenness, in his dependence on God, when he is enslaved and blinded by the Philistines, receives courage and strength to bring this pagan temple that he's in chains at, crashing down on his enemies in this self-sacrificial faith. Verse 33 to 35 go on that all these people, there's a whole list of more people, but all these people experienced the miraculous manifestation of God's power, not even just in defeating enemies, but even defeating death itself. For example, because of their faithfulness to God, He rescues Daniel from the mouths of lions. He rescues Daniel's three young friends from a furnace. He rescues these two sons of women who ministered to Elijah and Elisha from literal death by resurrecting them back into the land of the living. Now, did they experience the power of God because of their incredible, unreachable faith? Look closely, quietly nestled, between all these mighty acts of God in verse 34, it says that they were made strong out of their weakness. Did you catch that? 
And so the common thread in this section of scriptures is that none of them were Superman or Wonder Woman. They were human. They were flawed. They had failures at times. That you don't have to be perfect in order to be a hero in God's hall of faith. You see, there's times when you and I, we look at these Bible characters and we think their life and their experience of God is so detached from ours. And it's not that these were men and women that each had weaknesses. They were plagued by temptations and distractions, by doubt and despair, just like us. And that gives me hope because God can take weak faith and make it strong and courageous and do mighty things through it. You remember that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7, 17, verse 20, that God can take faith as small as a mustard seed the smallest known seed to the people in the ancient Near East. He can take faith as small as a mustard seed and move mountains with it. So for you and I, we may not face lions or death by burning in a furnace, but we do know what it's like to be weak, to need strength from God. So I want you to remember Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It doesn't say don't be strong in Samson and in his might. It doesn't say be strong by yourself and in your own might. That though we may be weak, though we may stumble at times, by faith in Jesus, that we have a connection and access to God, the power of God that's available for everyone who trusts him in the moments of our weakness and in the moments that we are overcome. And I think many of you know what that's like, that those moments when we're tossing and turning in the middle of the night because your brain keeps replaying that last mistake or that last argument, or it keeps reviewing the bad news that you received from your boss, from a loved one, from a doctor. In the middle of the night when you feel restless and anxious and hopeless, yet somehow you muster up a little bit of faith to cry out to Jesus. And then suddenly the power and presence of God come rushing in to give you humility and integrity in your situation, to give you courage to take that next right step. And many of you can testify that you are only here today because you personally experienced the victorious God overcoming your impossible situation, not because of the size of your faith, but because of the size of your God. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart quickens hearing these incredible triumphant moments of the power of God in, the mom- in people who are so weak. But what about those moments when there's no rescue that seems to come in this life? when we don't see God do that kind of thing. Let's pick up in the second half of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, Afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect yet. 
following Jesus doesn't always mean victory. In fact, we actually often experience tragedy, at least in this life. So in the second half of verse 35 and 36, these are examples of faith who experienced torture, imprisonment, and death. Some of them were even offered a release, an escape, and enter their chains and their pains if they'll simply renounce their faith. And yet they refused because they looked forward to a greater reward, it says in verse 36, to rise again to a better life. Literally, actually the ESV has a, that's a poor translation. The literal words there is to rise again to a better resurrection. Better in what sense? Remember those sons of the women in verse 35 that we just talked about who were miraculously raised from the dead by God? That's pretty cool, right? That's pretty powerful. And yet, you're not going to bump into them at Lucky later today because their resurrection, their, their coming back to life was only temporary. In fact, all these examples of faith who loved God, who worshiped God, who followed God in the Old Testament, they heard the prophecies about the coming Messiah. God whispering in the, into their heart so that they would receive Uh, their assurance of hope that he is going to bring a better resurrection, an eternal one. And so in verses 37 and 38, the prophets Zechariah and Isaiah were stoned to death. They were sawn in half. That's horrific. Others were put to the sword. They lived in poverty and affliction and experienced oppression. Yet none of them stopped trusting God. They never turned away from God. And the Bible declares that the world was not worthy of them. Men and women esteemed because of their courageous and perseverance in faith. That because a better resurrection is coming, that courageous faith would rather brave death than deny Christ. Why? What does faith believe in that moment of torture or suffering? That if God loves me, he's going to get me out of this? No. It believes that there is a resurrection for us that is better than a miraculous escape. That is better than the resurrection experienced by the widow's son who returned to life only to die again. And what we see in this passage is that all those who suffered, God didn't abandon them. God didn't reject them. Because we sometimes wonder that too when we experience suffering without relief. And what we see with them is that their suffering was not because they didn't have enough faith. In verse 39, God commends their faith, even though they continue to suffer. And that's immensely comforting to know that there's a better explanation for our pain or our pleasure uh, than whether or not we have enough faith. Because that would be horrible to believe that on top of all your suffering, that it must be because I lack faith. We don't assume that in this church. We don't look into the face of someone who's dying and say, if you had more faith, then you would have lived. What we will say is trust in God because whether you live by faith or whether you die in your faith, that God will take care of those who trust in him because Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain that there is something better ahead of us that we look forward to, that we place our trust in, that we allow our confidence to lead us into. So in verse 40, none of these examples of faith that lived in the old covenant relationship with God received the fulfillment of that promise. 
They're waiting for something better. And because they caught glimpses of what's in store when Jesus would come, when his work on the cross would be finished to make their salvation and ours complete, perfected, that they were able to endure suffering by keeping their eyes on that. And so in Cairo, in Egypt, there's a small and dusty grave. It's hidden in the corner of an abandoned graveyard. The picture is coming up on the screen at the end of a garbage-lined alleyway. And you would never know it's there because it's overgrown and unmaintained over a long period of time. And in it lies the body of one William Borden. He was the heir to the Borden Dairy Milk Company. You can picture in your mind that that little logo of a cow on milk. And it's still a big company today. But back then, it was one of the biggest. You see, this young man, he graduated from Yale in 1909. He was already a millionaire by the time he was 21. He had a life of luxury and power already laid out for him. But he became a Christian in his teenage years. And he told his parents that he's going to give his life to bring the gospel to the Muslim people because that was what God was calling him to do. And in fact, he looked at all of his inheritance and he refused to even buy himself a car, but gave up nearly all of his $50 million worth of wealth, which is a staggering amount back then. He gave it away to missions to the, for the work of the gospel. And as he entered the missions field, as he entered into his ministry, after only four months of studying and ministry in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis a death sentence. And on his way to receive medical help, he died on a ship at the age of 25. Now, someone asked him right before he died what he thought about all the decisions that he had made in his life. And he simply responded, no regrets. And on his tombstone, the one pictured before you in Cairo, there's a brief description of his sacrifice for the kingdom of God and for his love of the Muslim people, followed by a very simple phrase. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Do you live a life that doesn't make sense from a worldly economy, but makes perfect sense if you're living to the glory of God and the good of others today because you trust the promises of God and his eternal joy tomorrow, no matter the cost. Courageous faith trusts. It trusts God to look past the short-term pleasures or promises of this life to the long-term promises ahead in the life to come. And do you know what the common thread is between faith that escapes suffering or endure suffering, they both involve believing that God is better than what life can give you now and better than what death can take from you later. That when we can have it all, faith says that Jesus is better. And when we lose it all, faith says that Jesus is better. Faith is being utterly in love with all that God will be for us in eternity. Faith loves God more than life. Faith loves God more than family. Faith loves God more than job or retirement plans or building your dream house. 
faith says that whether God has me escape suffering or endure suffering, that I love him. He's my reward in verse 6. He's my home that I long for in verse 10. He is of greater worth than all the pleasures and treasures in this life, verse 26, because there's coming a day when we get to be with him forever. In the face of moments of crisis, when your faith is genuinely revealed, whether you really know and trust and follow Jesus. May you experience courageous faith, even in the dark times to come. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you for the encouragement and the beauty of your word. And even as I read your holy scriptures aloud, something inside me is filled with fear and trembling because you are so mighty and awesome, that you can take weak, normal, human, flawed people and give them such incredible courage to accomplish impossible things. And that even in the face of obstacles or pain, that you prove yourself to be a faithful God, worth our sacrifice, worth our trust. And so, God, we come before you humbly this morning and ask that you would help us that there are pleasures of this life and pains of this life that threaten to draw us away from you. During those moments, would you give us courage? Would you give us perseverance? That as we look at all that you have done, mighty deeds of the living God in the moments of people's weakness. And sometimes in moments when people are strong in their faith and yet do not experience rescue in this life because you have proved worth it and what you have in store for us is worth it. God, would you be our savior, our hope, our confidence. May we live a life worthy of the calling that you have given us in Christ Jesus, onwards and upwards until his quick return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.